Before we start, here's a message from one of our friends. Honest conversations with interesting people. Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, and I talk to a wide variety of guests across an eclectic range of interesting topics. People I've spoken to include a magister from the Church of Satan, a blind Australian filmmaker, a puppeteer from Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, and I also speak to musicians of all kinds of genres, authors, actors, podcasters. Really, there is no limit to who I speak to, and the subject matter is endless. So if you believe in the art of conversation and want to hear different people talking about their passions, then this is the perfect show for you. You can find Genuine Chit Chat anywhere you listen to podcasts, and there's some video versions on YouTube, so there's no reason not to tune in. Welcome to the show where people share their passions. Everyone is geek about something. I'm your super dummy Paul on a mission to learn from people's experiences. This is Era of Geek. Another big thank you to guest producer Ria for connecting me with today's guest. Once you've listened, be sure to head to the show notes to find a link to an episode of Femme on Film that they recorded together. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Alison Shelton. I'm the writer and creator of a comic, an indie comic named Reburn, that we did Kickstarters for issues one through four, which is the first complete arc. We just finished, now we're printing it. Um, I also write essays and um, I made a film a long time ago, tried to make another one. Um, so I'm just, I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> but you're around doing amazing things. You're not just hanging out Thanks. in corners. I, I can't say that. <laughs> that would be uh, not my brand to say that, but um, <clears throat> I'm getting better at it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am fortunate enough to be doing things with people I really respect and admire and things I'm excited about and proud of. And, um, it's been really, things really started to take off during COVID, um, which was amazing because COVID was such a hard time. Uh, and it was incredibly special to get on Zooms with Elise McCall, who's the artist for Reburn, and my business partner, Jessica Mattel, and, and talk about the world and the characters and um, where we were headed and the collaboration. And Elise and I have become, Jess and I already were very good friends, and Elise and I have become great friends. And I just, I mean, check out, obviously the story of Reburn is great, but the art is incredible. Um, and I, it's a, it's a real privilege to have something that's in your head and then have someone as talented as Elise bring it to life. Yeah. It is an amazing thing. Everything on there. It's great. It's a great team of, I'm just going to keep saying great, great people. Um, and the product that you've managed to. Women. Yeah. All women. Yeah, absolutely. That, and mm -hmm. that's wonderful because that's, I was going to say that's not, very common, but I don't know if I could think of a single other. <laughs> the, the run that uh, Kelly Thompson just did on Black Widow was an all-female team as well, but there are not very many of them. And I highly recommend that run of Black Widow if you are at all interested in the big two. I thought it was Elena Casagrande drew it, and it's 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 epic. I loved it. So how did how did this come to mind then? Because I I understand the story was sort of it's been in your head for a mm -hmm. while. But the idea of a comic came later on. It did, yes. I. It's funny, Jessica and I go way back. We both are kind of our first jobs in the business. We both in Los Angeles was as assistants, 
Um, and for anyone who's ever been an assistant, it can be a challenging job. And we really bonded over that. And um, I wrote, I was at the same time, I had sort of just finished my, um, my MFA at USC in film and television. And so I was also trying to like write screenplays and make a film, which, which I ended up doing making an indie film. And uh, I wrote this script called uh, Violet, which Jess read and really loved it and loved the world and was just always like, this is amazing. Obviously we can't make this independently. It's way too expensive, but I loved it. So um, we stayed in touch and then I, you know, we went our separate you know, we went on our own paths. She became um, a very successful television producer and I um, made a film and then kept writing. And then I got married and had kids and took a step back from the business because I found that I was just completely worn down from the pace and also from, um, to be honest, the sexual harassment and discomfort that I had in the world there. And I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. And I don't think anyone really cares what I have to say anyway. So what's the point? You know, I was very much at that place of feeling like, um, I just, yeah, no one cared. I, I felt fully convinced that nobody really cared what I had to say. And, um, Jess and my friend, Jen, who produced the indie film I made even understanding or like, well, if you ever write anything, like definitely show it to us. Cause we love your voice and you're so talented and all these nice things. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to write anything ever again. I hate it. Um, I'm done. <laughs> um, but that's really sweet of you. Like you're such good friends. I really appreciate it. You know? And they're like, no, no, really. Like we mean it. And I'm like, no, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, so when our second child went back to school, I was faced with like, Oh, well, I have some time. What am I? going to do. A lot of my friends were, you know, switching careers. Uh, and I considered that and I thought, well, maybe I'll just write for a while and, and just write what I want to write for who I want to write for and, and see what happens. And, um, so I did that. I really thought of like, who am I writing this for myself? Obviously, like I want to write something I want to see. And then Jen and Jess and my friends, um, because going to USC and working in Los Angeles, I had really been kind of trained to write to a specific audience, you know, um, mostly full of people who weren't interested in what I had to say. So <laughs> it was genuine when I thought no one cared because actually they didn't care. You know, like there was a part of that that was kind of self-hating and tough on myself, obviously, but there was a part of it that yeah. was true. You know, it's like they weren't really interested in what I was writing because I always write about women. I always write about um women dealing with struggles of like trauma and power and um, sex. And I always write about sex and you'd think people might be into that, but like a lot of guys are not into it. <laughs> I realized in film school, they were not interested in the female perspective on sex. You know, it was like, Oh, well, this isn't for me. Um, so I started like, okay, I'm just going to write what I want to write. And so I did that and I revisited the Violet script, right? I started thinking about it because I always really did love it too. And um, Violet is a character in Rebirth. She's about 18. And um, I was like, yeah, I'm not 18 anymore. I'm not even approximating 18 anymore. <laughs> um, and I'd always had in mind that Violet had this incredibly powerful mother, May, who then, so I re sort of I re-envisioned the whole thing from May's perspective because um, she's a mother and she's been wronged and she's trying to do it right this time. And so, you know, in some small way, I related to her 
And so I came at it Mm. from that direction. And um, so I I wrote a whole script and I was having lunch with Jess just because we're friends and she had read it. She's like, oh man, you know, I love it. I'm so glad you went back to it. Um, You should make it into a comic. And I was like, sure. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Like, I don't know how to do that. That sounds really great. I'm like barely, you know, just doing the things I need to do in my daily life. Um, and she's like, okay. You know, I said, but I would love that. I love comics. I, um, my husband has always been a comics fan and now I've been one for over 20 years. Cause we've been together that long. Um, and she was like, oh, well, that's cool. You're into it. She was working on a TV show that had been a comic. So she was sort of in that world. And then she came back to me and she's like, well, why don't we just do it? And uh, I was like, what do you mean? You know, like that just uh, felt kind of like wish fulfillment. And she, she started reaching out to people she knew like, okay, what do you do if you want to make a comic? And one of the people she reached out to, um, Cry Andrews, who's a artist, who's a comic artist and, and writer and a television director, um, was like, you don't know how many people I hear from on, a, on the regular who are like, I have a great comic idea, you know? Um, Cause everyone has a great comic idea or script idea or TV show idea, reality show idea. My husband works in reality. So we get a lot of like reality show ideas that you're like, that's not a whole idea. You know, like that's, that's just like some little thing that seems fun or cool. And, and it is, but it's not a fully fleshed idea, you know? And um, she was like, okay, you know, but what are the steps? So he helped us out and we will forever be grateful with like, here's what you do. You know, you write a script, you approach artists, you do all these things. And so we just kind of started doing them. I sat down and wrote a comic book script. Uh, We started approaching artists and Elise was really high up on our list. And we were just stunned when she wrote us back because that's not how it works in the business. You don't just like cold reach out to people and say, Hey, cool. You want to work together? Um, and she wrote back. I, she read the script. She loved it. She wanted to talk. And, uh, kind of from the first zoom, we just, I don't know, Lisa and I, like, we talk about it. We have like, we have, we have synergy. We have the thing. Um, we share like a mind, even though (laughs) we have such different life experience and we're not the same age and we're not, you know, but we have certain life experiences in common that, that make you into who you are. And, uh, she's just, she's honestly, I can't imagine a better fit. So we started working on it. We were going to just do a pitch and then COVID hit. And, uh, Jess was like, let's just do the first book. Let's do a Kickstarter. So we, we decided to go ahead and do that. And, and then we just kept going. Um, and it has been a learning curve. (laughs) If you, if you want to start a business, do a Kickstarter because you realize, oh, we started like a business. We have to like, you know, make this product and get it to people. And we were very serious about fulfillment and getting it out early and trying to do everything as well as, you know, the as best we could. And, um, and we've, we've been fortunate enough. Um, Jess is friends with Laura Vandervoort, who was um, Supergirl on Smallville. And she has a very loyal fan base. And so she kind of came in and helped us out. And so a lot of her fans came and supported us, which was huge. And then my friend, Anjali Bamani, who is going to be on Ms. Marvel and is the voice of Symmetra on Overwatch and um, Rampart and Apex Legends and also does, uh, what is it called? Xandria. It's like D&D uh, playing with All right. people live. She does that. So she's like super into the community. And so she has come and like we did a signing together. We are friends from college. So 
she's been really supportive. So it's really like special to have these people who believe in you, who also have much bigger reach than you have. Um, because it's hard. There's a lot of really great indie comics out there. There's a lot of great product out there and it's hard to get people to see yours or find yours. Mm. It's a challenge. Very different from your previous experience of like, no one wants to know what you're saying to having (laughs) a group of amazing supporting women around you Mm. who all want to hear what you're saying. And so many people coming up behind them and going, Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. It was really, I mean, the first Kickstarter was, and I, and I should be clear, like people have been supportive of my writing. I just wasn't really seeing them Mm. because I was in my own shit, you know? And, um, I, uh, the first Kickstarter was really uh, mind blowing because we had like four over 400 backers and, um, a lot of people who I've known over the course of my life came through and it was just really emotional seeing their names. I don't know if you've ever done a crowdfunding thing, but you know, you can see all the backers as they're doing it and what they backed and, and like people who are just like, Oh my God, you know, um, (laughs) this person I knew a long time ago and they're so excited about what you're doing. It was just really, it was lovely. It was very life affirming. Um, and, um, it was, it was so, we did it right after, um, Biden was inaugurated because we didn't, well, not right after at the end of January. Cause we were like, who knows what might go down and boy, were we right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, like, let's just let all that happen, you know, and yeah. then we'll launch after that just in case there's like a insurrection. Hey. Um, and <laughs> there was, um, so it was like, it felt, it was also like the moment of feeling this, like, Oh God, we we're getting a break from Trump and, you know, we're sort of doing something really empowering and positive. And it was, it was lovely. It was really special. No, oh, it sounds amazing. The whole process that you've gone through and free Kickstarters now and smashed your target each time. And you've built a great fan base behind you. Do you think you would have been able to get anywhere close to the same sort of achievements if you hadn't gone down the comic book route, if you'd gone somewhere else, maybe? Because there is, there's sort of this way that comic book creators are, like you described it there. There's a weird way that you can just get in contact with someone and I'll be like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. And it's funny too, talking to Elise, like she will get emails from too many people who are like, I have this really good idea, do it for free. And just like, she's not going to do it for free. You know, like it was also part of our goal to pay everyone like a fair indie comic rate that I mean that's where all the money basically goes from the Kickstarter is to them and there were moments when I was I think both Jess and I were overwhelmed with the amount of work that a Kickstarter is especially the first one because you've never done it before um but writing those checks to people is really uh powerful like I'm really proud to be supporting somebody that whose work I love and who I think is a wonderful person so um that was great um, I, a movie is like not going to happen because Reburn would be like over a hundred million dollars. You know, I'm an unproven yeah. writer and, um, I guess you could write fiction and self-publish. Um, but it actually felt like a comic and I really, um, I love comics and part of the reason, I mean, I am now just in the past year and a half starting to write essays and work on a book proposal. I have been really slow to, um, write in that way. Like I have always been interested in television or film, 
something where there's a collaboration, where there's a visual element, I think stories can, are really compelling, um, with a visual element. And I, I really do love collaboration. I'm not really, I mean, I'm better at like sitting down. I mean, I'm good at sitting down and writing. I should be honest about it. Um, but I, I, I love how an idea gets better when you work on it with other people. Like it's very satisfying for me to, I know some writers really don't like that. They really just want their idea to be sort of the last word, you know, like, well, I wrote this and it's amazing. So just do it. Um, I I'm not like that. I'm like, okay, I think it's good. Like I get it to a place where I'm proud of it and I love it, but I also know that there's always room for improvement in any idea. Like no idea is perfect. Um, and I think that is like, I don't, it's the best, it's honestly the best feeling for me is when somebody comes in and like makes something that I love better. Um, it's, it's, it's great. And I think you can do that with a written word with like your editor or your readers, for sure that happens. But um, I think I particularly admire artists because it's not my skill set. And um, Elise is particularly talented at sequential art. Like not every artist is, is great at sequential art. It's a really specific skill set and she is. And I, my scripts do have um, panels in them you know, like it will be like page one, panel one, two, three, four, five, six or whatever. But, um, and usually it's similar, the panel count, but she does things that are like, we have a double page spread in issue four. And, um, I mean, that's like free for all, right? Like it's a double page spread. You can lay it out however you want to lay it out as the artist. And it's just so great. And like that feeling of, um, I, I can't, it's really difficult to describe, but it's just, it's a rush. And it's, it's just like, um, I'm just so pleased and proud of it. And um, I can't imagine it in a different way because this is what it is now for me, you know, and I hope that we get to keep doing it. And, um, you know, we're trying to find a publisher because we feel like we kind of need to level up. It's a lot of work. We can't kind of keep doing this indefinitely. So we're, I would like, I would love to keep writing Reburn and we have a couple spinoffs in mind and that would be fun. Like I, for me, the world is pretty vast and there's a lot we can do. Um, and I think that is one of the things that sets it apart from a lot of indie comics is that it has a lot of space to grow. You know, it's not just one story. There's lots of stories to tell and a lot of characters that I find really compelling and would love to write more of their story. It's fascinating listening to you talk about it because there's, you bring a, a particular point of view to things because even just the way you described there, the process of um, writing it down, sending it off, you hear a lot about the stories of people who have written a comic book. They send it off to the artist and the artist come back to them and says, okay, we may need to tweak this ever so slightly, you know, but even just the way you describe it, it's, it's great. It's I've done this. They've made it better. They've sent it to me. We can make it better together. And then it comes to life. You're not excited just for the end product. It's just the doing of it as well. Definitely. And, and I think that's something I, I, I think I learned when I stepped back from writing is like, if I'm not, because, because <laughs> I never got an agent, you know, like I did the whole write your scripts, submit them, blah, 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 take meetings, all the things. Like I did it. I went to film school. I did it all right. Quote unquote, right. And, um, I didn't have like the happy ending where I got repped and then I got a deal and da, 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 you know, and I have loads of friends who did, you know, so it's not just that I didn't like, I was outside of that world. I was not. Um, and it didn't happen for me. And I realized when I came back to writing, I had to love the process because I don't actually know where it's going to go. Like I might never have a film made ever again. I, um, 
I might not have a book published. I might never get an agent this time. I don't, I'm not even, I haven't even tried to get an agent this time because I feel like what I enjoy doing is writing. What I enjoy doing is creating. And so I'm going to do that. Um, and I'm fortunate enough that now I'm older and I have a husband who works in television and I'm not as concerned with how I'm going to possibly live. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom, so I'm still that too. And um, I realized like that has, I have a lot of privilege that I can do that. Um, but I think that was the only way it was sustainable for me because I, I couldn't really, um, I couldn't really put myself through that again where I was putting it out there to look for honestly strangers approval of whether I had merit or not. Like I needed to um, create things that I was excited about and enjoy the process and enjoy every step because no, no end is guaranteed. And um, it's, I've had a much better experience this time overall. I just, I'm not watching the phone. I'm not watching my inbox. I'm just, creating and um and I've met some really wonderful people and I've been a part of these projects and I'm just I feel really grateful that I was able to return that I have the space in my life to do this and that um and that I'm much better at um being true to myself yeah it, it must be even from that that first step of clicking the button to the Kickstarter, it must be a very, I don't know, self-reflective experience of how am I going to deal with this? Right? When you press that Kickstarter button, there, there are no guarantees. <laughs> it could go all wrong from there. Mm -mm. Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety for sure. You're trying to set the goal at something that seems realistic because you do want to get, because Kickstarter, you don't get the money unless you get all the money. Indiegogo, you do get the money even if you don't hit your goal but kickstarter you don't so um you want to put the goal at a place that feels reachable yeah. you know and i think a lot of people end up potentially funding their own kickstarters you know um because hell <laughs> i mean i get it and we were in a situation all the times that we did not have to do that you know and i i feel really um I don't, I don't know. Certain people came through and <laughs> like one guy, I know, I know him from like way back when I had an indie film, we were doing the festival circuit and we just clicked He's a DP and he's very wildly successful now, which he completely deserves. And, um, he, you know, would just support me and it meant a lot to me, you know, like that he remembered me, that he remembered our, my film that, um, I don't know. I'm one of these people who kind of like makes friends in life. You know, I am not a person who doesn't have friends, but I never know if they really think I'm their friend. You yeah. know, I think they're <laughs> my friend, um, but you can't assume it's reciprocal, yeah. you know, like you don't want to walk around like, Oh, well, you know, I'm well loved. I mean, that's not something I'm going to think say, uh, but then when these people who thought, Oh, you were special to me, then they came through and backed me. I was like, Oh, you know, you feel this kind of reciprocity and, uh, it's, uh, it's meaningful. It meant a lot to me. And, uh, I've tried, I thanked everyone who backed, you know, I would text them. And if I see them in real life, I thank them. And, um, 
like it, 10 bucks means a lot, you know? And I think people don't know that they're like, I had people text me and say, I'm sorry, it wasn't more. And I'm like, there's no, it's not about that. Like, yes, it's very meaningful when someone gives you a bunch of money. Sure. It's lovely. But like, you know, 10 bucks also like their support, like they're putting their energy and their money and their time behind you. And that means something. Um, so if you're ever on the fence about supporting someone, you know, and they're crowdfunding, just do it. And if it seems like too little money to them, they're a jerk because <laughs> there shouldn't be too little money because really every backer counts. And we would say that. And I think people are like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But like, no, really every backer does count. And, um, we shouldn't feel self-conscious that we can't give more. Giving something is meaningful. And I think sometimes we get caught up in like, oh, I should be able to give this amount or give it, you know, your support is meaningful. It, it means a lot to that person. I can tell you right now running that crowdfunding campaign, like every person means something to them, unless they're like wildly successful making $34 million or something, yeah. you know, like if they're <laughs> just like a regular person, <laughs> it is very meaningful. Um, and I think people feel that way. I think that's kind of, because people ask like, what's the draw of Kickstarter? And I think that is the draw for a lot of people. Like they feel invested in these projects. They feel connected to the creators. They're, you know, they're, they're, they are backers, like for real, they're investors. They, they made it happen. I think there's like, it's in a world where you can feel so disconnected from people. I think people do find connection in those, in those crowdfunding platforms. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah. I have to be careful with Kickstarter because I can see myself very easily getting addicted to it. <laughs> For sure. I think people do because you'll see like has backed and they'll have like a very large number, yeah. you know, and you think like, wow, that's a lot of, even if you're doing 10 bucks, like that's significant amount. And you'll see people back and then not back. And I'm sure there are people who back and then like, go, oh, okay, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta just like <laughs> not back all of those projects. Um, and that is a little heartbreaking when they don't back, but I, I always hope that they're doing it because they're being fiscally responsible yes. and they're like making a vote to be responsible. It's like, okay, I can take it. If you're just like trying to break even on your bills, go for it, do what you need to do. Yeah. You know? No, it's brilliant. I, you, I love your positivity. It's seeping. I love it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's for real. Um, it's like, uh, I think it's the, from the going, it's also like, it's a conversation I have with my kids. I have a 14 year old and, you know, sometimes he feels like life sucks and the future sucks. And I do not like say to him, oh, well, no, it doesn't. I mean, I get it. Like, it looks pretty bleak out there sometimes. And I mean, hope for me is the only way you keep going. Like I, I can't, I, I have in the past felt just overwhelmed with the, these, I mean, I live in the United States, 10 black people were just shot by white supremacists. Like it's bleak, it's rough. Um, and, but I think the more we talk about these things and the more we call them what they are, as opposed to some lonely gunman, no, he's a white supremacist. He went to kill black people, you know, let's call it what it was. And, um, I just try to be honest about like what the obstacles are and then like, what do we do? What can we each personally do? Because that's all we can really do is, is change our own lives and our own worlds. Like I used to feel like, Oh God, how do we like make the world a better place? <laughs> Which is just like, ah, that's not actionable. You know, like you can't go change the world. Like good luck. It's, it's a big world. And there's lots of people who don't agree with you. Um, the best I think is to just 
change ourselves, right? And uh, do the best we can um, and hold ourselves to a high standard. So I try to do that. And I try to do that in my relationships. Um, And I'm not perfect. I'm like always trying to get better. But um, yeah, I need hope. Otherwise, like how the hell do you get out of bed? Yeah. I mean, how do you keep going? And, and that's not helping anyone, to be honest, that's what they want. Like they want all the noise and all of the hate and all of the rage. They want you to be paralyzed. They want you to not vote. They want you to not be engaged. So if you do that, they're winning. Um, so fuck them. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's not my motto. <laughs> you know, have hope. Like that's revolutionary. Hope is revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, because we, you sort of alluded to it earlier, and there are still so many problems in the industry and all sorts of industries. But that even just mm-hmm. the idea that this is a product created by a team of women, there are certain people out there that would immediately find reason <laughs> to comment on that for reasons I cannot understand. Mm-hmm. I they don't want us there. They really don't want us in the space. A lot really don't want us. I mean, there's a lot of spaces that people only really seem to want white, straight, cis men, which to me seems incredibly dull and homogenous, but you know, okay. I mean, that's the argument that keeps being used. We joke about it here because um, we love like the diversity that's shown up in the Marvel Mm. movies and um, is in the big two now more. Um, And the argument is always like, oh, that's not how it was. That's not how it was originally imagined. I was like, yeah, because they didn't have any fucking imagination. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that's the way it has to always be. Yeah. You know, like I were very excited for Ms. Marvel. I love Ms. Marvel. Um, I I love all these shows and movies. And I mean, I think it scares the shit out of these people that all this stuff is becoming mainstream, that we're just like accepting that non-white people, that people of color can be superheroes, you know? Like, uh, how is that a huge leap? (laughs) I mean, they're superheroes in their everyday lives. I don't really know why they can't be in imaginary lives. Um, So it's just, uh, yeah. I I think, I mean, I don't know if we're segueing into geek culture, but certainly as a woman, it's something I'm aware of. Like, I don't feel as comfortable I think as like say my husband feels in certain spaces and I love being with like I mean it's just what it is and I think I was thinking about because you had you had emailed me oh you know I might I'll ask you like how did you first like become like Mm. a geek or acquainted with being a geek or whatever and I was like okay that's uh hard and I was talking to my husband about it because I grew up in a very um sporty family. I guess that's the way you could put it. Um, there was not a lot of room for that kind of behavior. I was the youngest of five. I was the only girl. Um, two of my brothers were, were obviously geeks and two were not. And the two who were, were teased mercilessly. Um, especially, uh, the older one who was just, um, I don't know. He died when I was young and, um, I still love him very much. And, uh, he was like proud of it before people were proud of it. 
um, he was like a sports geek. He would uh, have a TV and like two radios to listen to all the different baseball games. And he would be writing all the stats. Um, and uh, he had baseball cards and baseball jerseys. And, you know, he actually, before he died, was helped <laughs> worked with an odds maker. Like he really took it like the where as far as you can take it. Um, and so that was probably my first introduction was sport, definitely sports. Like, um, and I grew up in Southern California. And so the Lakers were a very big deal. And we watched all the Lakers games and um, Dodgers games and not as much the Rams because they sucked. And um, <laughs> but that was my first. And I was thinking about like, oh, what did I do that? And then I like Googled geek because I was like, I don't know. Like, am I am I enough of one? Am I? And then like one of the things was like, if you Google that, you are. So I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> 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 Phew, I qualify um, because I. That's the kind of geek I am. Like, I'm just curious mm. and I just want to know things. And I. So my brothers are much older than me, like ten to eighteen years older than me. So they were always better at everything when I was young because I was a child. And, um, but I didn't really get that, nor did they ever like mention it. You know, it was never like, oh, we can like kick your ass in tennis because you're seven and we're 17, you know, which, so I was always trying to be as good as them. And then when I finally did beat them, they stopped playing, but they were great sportsmen. And, um, (laughs) um, I remember we got Trivial Pursuit, like the first version of Trivial Pursuit, which was a big deal. This game like took over the world. People were so into it. And I really wanted to win (laughs) because I couldn't win sports because I was, I think now at this point I might've been 11, 10. I don't know. I should have Googled it. And um, I then memorized questions and answers i would just take that box of cards around and i would just read them and i would read them and read them and read them and read them and that's what i did and i realize now that i have children this age the fact that i could like memorize that neville chamberlain was the pm and whenever the hell he was the pm um since i had no (laughs) idea who neville chamberlain was or a pm um (laughs) that i could memorize that you know I was really determined and I beat their asses and they called me a cheater because I had learned the knowledge and um I was like cheating is like if I'm looking at the answer now cheating is not if I'm smarter than you and uh, they didn't really like that and uh (laughs) that was the first thing I think I really geeked out I mean I still, that old Trivial Pursuit game, I still can be like, you know, Sandy Koufax or whatever the hell the random sports and leisure questions are, which were always the hardest for me. Um, I don't really care who won the PGA championship in 1972, but, you know, I would try to memorize that. Um, and then at the around that same time, it was like video, arcade video games, Pac-Man, Centipede. Um, I still remember, you know, pinching my hand in the Centipede like because you know it has the little roller ball yeah and if you do it really fast which of course you have to if you want to be good at it um you pinch your hand and your little skin would go in that little space and really hurt um (laughs) but you just keep playing um and my parents would not, not buy me a home video game system because they were afraid that it would um take over my life and they might have been right so 
I would go to my friend's houses and play Atari because that's what it was at that point. And I would just make friends with people because they had like had Atari, you know, it's like, hi, so um, can I come over? Um, <laughs> I'll be so fun. Uh, so I loved, those are the first things that I, I was like trying to think about what I first, um, and obviously like Wonder Woman, but like I never had the underoos and I never had the Halloween costume and I never, but there wasn't really that space to be doing that either. Um, my, my youngest brother at that time was kind of like going deep, like wearing camo all the time and like talking about joining the military and, um, they had their hands full with him and, um, yeah. And, uh, I didn't, I, I never really like went really far with wonder woman. She was also just, um, I just liked anything with like women basically. I mean, I loved Charlie's angels probably as much as I loved wonder woman. Um, and so yeah, trivial pursuit and Pac-Man, I had the high score and my brother would always put for his initials PCP because that was a drug at the time, angel dust. And he thought he was like, so clever. I was like 10 and I'm like, why are you putting PCP? (laughs) You know, all right. Anyway. I figured it out. It wasn't in trivial pursuit, but I still found the knowledge to figure out what PCP was. Um, so those were the first things that I really like. And I, and, you know, I got teased for them and told I was a cheater. (laughs) There were no accolades like, wow, that's really clever of you to like memorize all the trivial pursuit cards. It was just like, you have beat us and now I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) That's not cool. Not not the best introduction to geek, to being a geek. <laughs> no, but I was very proud of myself. Rightly so. You know, like I still felt good about myself. Um, and I and I was always kind of. I mean, that was definitely my family was very dysfunctional. As in case you have a guest, and um, I was always the smart one, which I think is hilarious because I don't know if you're from a big family, but lots of times, like in a big family, everyone kind of gets their like identity. There's like the class the chalk the cool one the blah, 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 you know and mine was the smart one it was still available child number five smart one was still available um and I went with it and that was um that was my definitely my identity you know I was definitely the smartest one my parents would say like you're more mature you're smarter than your brothers which is like that and um I have always been super like I love to read I still love to read. I read a lot of books. Um, people who know me, I'm like, how do you read so many books? God damn it. Um, and I, people definitely like would tease me for being smart. Um, I don't think geek nerd was definitely the word, um, but I was also very sporty. Um, so I managed to sort of thread the needle of um, like, I was smart, but I wasn't. Like I was voted smartest, you know, in my class and uh, in eighth grade and uh, which I don't know what that is in England. Um, it's like when you're 14. Um, but I, I was not really teased for it. I also had a, like a fairly big mouth. So I might have told people to go, you know, F themselves <laughs> to, try to try to call me that. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely threaded the needle. But like then as I got older. I was still very sporty, but like, uh, you start like applying to colleges and universities and stuff. And I was very determined to go to a good one. And, um, 
it was complicated because I had a lot of friends that were like, oh, you're such a drag. Like, why do you care about all of that stuff? And it's like, can I do? Because like, I, I care about knowing things and being good at things. And um, I just, I didn't feel like high school, I, people would say, I don't know if people still say this nonsense, but certainly when I was in high school, you would get a lot of like, isn't high school like the best time of your life? And I was like, God, I fucking hope not. <laughs> If it is, I'm done because literally this is the worst. So I don't know why people say that. And my mom would say to me, like, if you know someone in high school is the best time in their life. Oh, no. Like, that's not good. That does not bode well for their future. And my mother was homecoming queen. So she speaks with some knowledge um, of being like popular or whatever. But um, yeah, I just... I did not enjoy high school at all. Um, I, I think I was just overwhelmed with like how many people were like having so much fun in a way that seemed so deeply unfun to me. I just didn't understand like what was fun about it. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I was just on a camping trip with my older son and we were standing at the campsite and it was just like a huge dirt area and they were all like goofing off all the 14 year olds because they're 14. And um, it reminded me so much of like a high school party because I went to high school in Colorado and there were lots of uh, parties in dirt parking lots <laughs> with a keg. And I turned to my fellow chaperones. I said, does this like remind anyone else of a high school party? And my good friend um, was like, I didn't get invited to high school parties. And I said, okay. We weren't invited. We just like drove around <laughs> and looked for like people in a parking lot yeah. who were drinking <laughs> shitty beer. And that was fun. Like I, I was not fun for me. I didn't understand what was fun about it. Um, I wanted to like hang out and talk about stuff and like um, have common interests and conversations and like talk about what was going on in my life, which was like a shit show and nobody was interested in it. You know, it was just like, can you stop being such a downer? Um, but like, that's, was my life. And I was a downer <laughs> because I was down. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like manufacturing it. It was real. Um, and I just, I felt like, especially at that age, there was a lot of like silver liningness going on. Like people just wanted to be like, yes, this sucks. But like, oh my God, we're out in the dirt parking lot drinking shitty beer. Like that's fun. It's not fun. It's not fun. This is not fun. None of this is fun. Um, so I was very happy to go to university and like meet people who like talked about books. And I was a theater major and I was, I loved like talking about plays and um going to plays and then in graduate school, I was in film school and I, I love, I mean, I, I was on Ria's podcast talking about, um, the kids are all right. <clears throat> Cause I love talking about movies. And I, I took a class at NYU. I went to grad school at USC university of Southern California, but I took a course at NYU at New York university one summer because I wanted to like see if I really wanted to go to film school because I was intimidated by the whole, like, honestly, film geek culture and the whole, like, and I was a woman and there were not a lot of women, uh, thinking they wanted to do that. And, um, our professor who was a wonderful man, uh, Nick Tannis, he gave us, a like a sheet <laughs> back when you had like sheets, copies, um, 
of like all the movies we should watch. It was like hundreds of movies, you know, that we should watch. And this was before streaming or before, you know, and um, I then applied to film school and I felt, I felt at a loss. Like I felt like I was not a film. Like I watched the Star Wars movies. I liked them. I, you know, but I was not like, there was, and I think there still is, but at this time there was very much this, like the people who went to film school were boys, always boys, always white boys who were like, I would watch Star Wars and then I wanted to make movies, you know? And then I started making movies on my super eight camera or my family's video camera. And I've been making movies ever since I was eight. Like that was definitely, there was a, a large cohort of those people in film school. And I was not from that cohort, I was coming at it from a very different direction, which was, I want to make creative projects that speak to me and to people I know, and I want to collaborate with people. And I want to use the language of film to do that. But I don't necessarily think that everything I have to say is like the most brilliant thing that's ever been said. You know, like I, I want to um, like co-create with people and film felt like this really collaborative um, medium. And it is. Um, And so I took that thing that panned out and I watched, I think probably like 300 films that next year, many of which were on that list um, because I was luckily, I was lucky to live near an excellent public library that had all these VHS tapes because like, honestly, that's how you still have to watch some of these movies is on VHS tape because they have not been put on DVD because they're like random foreign films from the 1940s. Um, and I watched the hell out of those movies and I showed up to film school and I was like, I, it was like trivial, trivial pursuit all over again. Right. I was <laughs> yeah. like, I know my shit. Yeah. Like if you want to come at me and talk to me about Scorsese, which I guarantee every dude wants to talk about Scorsese or Kubrick. Those are the choices Two people. I don't like their movies. So come at me. It's fine. Um, but I had watched them all and knew why I didn't like them instead of just like having this deep discomfort with their work, which I did before I made myself sit and watch all of them, which I wouldn't do now because life is too short and I'm older, but back then I did. And it felt like necessary. And I think that when women and people of color and queer people talk about like wanting to have their stories told, I think if you could imagine what it was like for me, this woman who watched 20 films she didn't like so that she could explain why she didn't like them because unless she could do that she wouldn't be taken seriously and really watch 300 films I mean how many did I like of those films 150 they were all mostly by white guys I mean yeah you got some Kurosawa cool um Ozu I'm like trying to think on that list who was not a white guy Ozu Kurosawa Wurt Mueller. Hi, Darren. Um, it's really small. Yeah, it's not I mean, a I good sign go that you're trying it. to really scrape through the memory. Yeah. To- <laughs> Hundreds of films. Yeah. Hundreds. And now there would be more women and people of color and queer filmmakers on that list. Um, but people would, much like we're talking about with Comics Gate, say that those films are on there because they're not white men they would then qualify any of those films as being included because they're made by women and people of color and queer filmmakers, not that they deserve to be there. Um, With which I 
deeply. I mean, I wholeheartedly disagree with that sentiment um, because of the barriers that those filmmakers needed to get through to make their films. I mean, they're ta- they're incredibly talented. That they got to make a film at all speaks to how talented and um, relentless they are. Yeah. Um, and and in my film school class of fifty, you know, it was I've written about it, and I don't know if I have the statistic right. And, Correct. But I think there was 38 men and 12 women and um, one black guy, you know, a few Asian women, like it was predominantly and, and a couple of queer students, but it was predominantly white straight cis men. And, and, and many of them are the ones who are working out. Um, And I was told when I was in film school, like, you really need to focus on what you're saying as a woman. you should probably go into documentary filmmaking because there's really no space for you in narrative. No one's going to take you seriously. No one's going to give you $10 million to make a movie or 20 or 30 or $40 million. Um, so just do what you can. You know, it was never a question of whether I was talented. I was very fortunate at USC. Professors got behind me and did think I was, and, and many of those professors, almost all of them were women and uh, black men, to be honest, they were very supportive of me. Um, And, um, it was just like, you know, you're going to get scraps. So figure out the best you can do with those scraps. And that's just what it was. And when I was abused, which I was verbally abused by a professor of mine, um, for a project I made, um, he was like a substitute, like a, cause my, the guy went on sabbatical and this guy came in and he was like in his seventies and he had directed like, um, some movies. I probably shouldn't say his name. So, um, he had directed some movies back in sixties, mm, seventies, you know, and, um, my short film was about, um, a woman who was looking for the perfect fuck, which to me did not seem that controversial. It was a comedy. I mean, sex in the city was happening. Friends was ha- like, people were starting, were talking about these things, but he hated it. And I cannot like, I cannot stress how much he hated it, the depth with which he hated it. Um, He called me to his house for like a personal meeting, um, which I would now not go to. Um, But I was 23, 24. And um, he proceeded to just scream at me um, for a long time screaming so much that, you know, he's spitting on me about what a whore I am and what a whore my character is and how can I live with myself writing such trash? Um, because I refuse to change the script. He wanted her to be contrite. Like she has a bunch of sexual adventures. She then ends up with this guy that she likes or whatever. It's just like, you know, pretty, it's not like fucking revolutionary. It's pretty standard. Yeah. She has some <laughs> sexual adventures. She finds a guy she likes, you know, like it wasn't, she didn't murder anybody. You know, she didn't like eat babies for breakfast. Like she like had sex basically yeah. is what she did. It was disgusting. Um, so he was like, he wanted her to be, of course, contrite and shameful, right? Because she's a whore. And um, I said, no, <laughs> she's not contrite and shameful. She's having sex. Like she's of, of age and she's like not even having sex with married men or anything. Like they're just dudes. Um, and even if she was having sex with married men, that's on them. But, you know, like she's not even doing anything even vaguely objectionable other than having sex with no regrets. And he 
was so angry at me. Um, and he tried to get me removed from my project um, because I wouldn't take his notes. And there was one woman on faculty and she stood up for me. And that was the reason I didn't lose it, but no one else did. And the most damaging thing he did was in, we would have class feedback and it was like a class, it was like a thesis class project that I had won on the merits of my writing and whatever. So a bunch of people don't like you already because you won and they didn't. Um, and then you're in this um, situation and he would give notes on dailies. And obviously okay, you can probably guess his notes on my dailies were not positive because um, it was about a whore. And uh, he opened the door to that kind of feedback. He gave space for that kind of feedback. He made that kind of feedback okay. So I got a lot of feedback about how unsympathetic she was, about what a bitch she was. And, and the interesting thing is, I'm still friends with the actress who played the main character. She is adorable, so sweet, so sympathetic, like just a lovely human. I didn't even play her like um, cold-blooded. Mm. She was like just an adorable woman having some sexual hijinks. You know, what made her unsympathetic was that she was in charge. And that made people uncomfortable. Um, and that semester was just brutal. I got just demeaned and belittled and harassed. Um, and that was a matter of course. And if I wanted to complain or if I wanted to mention that, you know, after class, I would go and cry in my car um, to get over what it felt like to be demeaned in front of a group of 60 people at length. I would just say, well, that's how the business is. And if you can't take it, you should get out now. And, uh, and I totally internalized that. I believed them. I thought that I had to go through something like that to be taken seriously as a female director. Um, I didn't push back at all. The only pushback I did was to stay true to my story, but I wasn't true to myself. And, and that took its toll for sure. Um, and that's part of the reason when I stopped writing, I was just relieved, uh, because I was like, I I can't cut it. <laughs> I actually can't cut it. Um, and it took me, honestly, it took me years to unpack what that did to me creatively and what it did to me personally. Um, and, uh, and I just know that, that other filmmakers and creatives go through that kind of that kind of thing with regularity and we still normalize it and, and it makes me sad. So um, that's part of the reason I think I have so much gratitude about the collaborations that I have now um, because that was always my intention. My crew on that film was almost all women. Um, and yeah, they, I only had three men um, and we had the most diverse crew and obviously the most women and it's always been my intention to create spaces like that, but um, yeah, you can't always, you know, you can't always do the thing you're intent to do. Um, and it was really like, it was, it was soul crushing, to be honest. It was really rough. Um, and it took all the joy out of the process. And I think that's part of the reason I have so much joy in the process now, because, you know, the finished thing, like it could live on, but lots of times it doesn't. You know, sometimes you make something that really is meaningful to people, but sometimes you don't. 
So if you aren't, if you personally aren't enjoying the artistic journey, what are you doing it for? Lots of times it's not going to pay you much, if anything, you know, and, and who knows what, how it's going to be for people. You know, I know everybody wants to make something that's really important and significant, but how many people really do that really? So we just have to, I have to, I have to really enjoy the process of my life, of my creative life, um, in order to keep going because it's just not finished things aren't enough for me. It's kind of a miracle that the industry, even though it's not diverse, it's kind of a miracle it's to the level of diversity it is because there ain't no way 90% of people would put up with that sort of stuff. Like if all the, if all the men had to put up with all that, they would have tapped out a long time ago. So it's kind of, I, it's made me look at the industry in both utter dismay, but also like a certain amount of that's a miracle. How the hell did that happen? Because <laughs> why would anyone put up with that? I think some people do get mentored, you know, and that really helps. But I think even then, like you're facing that kind of prejudice, like in the rooms when you're pitching, you know, cause I have friends obviously who are very successful and um, one of them is a, a person of color and he's an editor and he has shared some of the stories, like things people, I mean, he works with a lot of people who are, are people of color and that environment is very positive for him, but like, he works with white, some white people. And he says, you know, they'll, they'll, they will, he's Asian and they will like make fun of other people of color. He's like, I'm sitting right here, you know, but they won't think that he's a part of that, you know, like the amount of kind of, um, I mean, I guess it's us versus them, you know, kind of stuff. And, and they've really got a lot of I mean, you can see it politically, you can see it, um, electorally, um, there, and you can see it in these like completely bogus theories, um, that, that white people are being driven out of, um, positions of power. Um, and it's, it's a lie. Um, it's just a lie and it's not pie. And just because someone else gets a slice doesn't mean you won't get a slice. And, and honestly, if, if somebody got something and I didn't, because I was white, I mean, okay, I'll be, I'm okay with it. Like it's, I, I didn't get things for so long. Cause I'm a woman that really irked me. <laughs> but if, if someone's getting it because they've faced more challenges than me and they have less privilege than I have. Okay. I'd much rather it go that way than the other way. So, you know, I mean, I, I just, I don't, I don't have, I don't have the space for it. I just, I just don't, I, I feel like I, you know, I, I, I get that people are terrified, but like, if they really look at the history and, and the statistics and the data, like white people still have the majority of the power and the money and the intergenerational wealth and the jobs and the benefits and the benefit of the doubt. Um, and the change that's coming is glacial, you know, it's not like, I wish it were faster, but it's not. So everyone can just fucking relax. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, 
I, I mean, I, I listen to like a lot of, um, social justice and anti-racist things and read books and, um, am very involved in those things at my kid's school. And, um, I, uh, you know, and here enslavement started in 1619. That was almost 400 years ago. You know, we got 400 years to undo that. Like we got a long, long way to go. And some people are still not, um, I mean, they still aren't really like, I mean, I was talking about it with my husband just the other day, you know, our country, my country, the United States was built on, you know, the extermination of the indigenous people here and then the enslavement of Africans to build wealth for white people. Um, and if we don't want to own that, where are we going to head with this? You know, this is our history where we've been. And I've found that the more that I'm honest about my own personal history, um, I go to Al-Anon, uh, cause I got lots of alcoholics in my family and, um, you know, secrets aren't good. Um, and I think the shame that's associated with that seat, those secrets are toxic. And the more we can own where we've been, we can redirect where we're headed. You know, I have to believe that. And of course there's shame associated with what we as white people have done, but let's stop pretending there's shame associated with it. <laughs> it's shameful. It's terrible. Um, so I think, you know, speaking of these things, it's painful at first, but the more you do it, the better you get, the less painful it gets. I think that's my experience. And, and I have to say some of my friends don't agree with me and we don't hang out as much anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> you make new friends, <laughs> um, you know, you do make new friends. Um, yeah. so I don't yeah. know. I just don't, I don't, I don't have the space anymore for it. I've got the image again of like you described you in school, just wanting to tell your story and no one wanting to listen, but, I think that kind of sums up the world, really. There are so many people that just want to tell their story and just want to have someone to talk mm -hmm. to and stop going to car parks and listen. Right. Yeah. And to be believed and yeah. not to be minimized and told, oh, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. You know, like, just listen to people who have the lived experience. Just listen. What does it cost you? That's the thing that I've always been so... Um, astounded by like it does seem like it costs some people something to listen but to me it's like it's it's a radical act it's a revolutionary act listen um believe people um i think if you've had an experience where you weren't believed and the pain you know i've certainly had experiences where i wasn't believed and the pain associated with that um, he, it's hard to speak up it's not easy so if someone is sharing like a vulnerable piece of themselves with you the least you can do is treat it with care mm. it's hard it's a hard thing and you get better at it it's a muscle the more you do it the better you get the more feedback you get that's certainly been my experience. 
the more that I share now I'm in the space where people expect this stuff from me. Right. Cause I share it on social media and I share it in my work. And so people expect like, Oh yeah, Allison's going to say some things that make me vaguely uncomfortable, but it's okay. <laughs> She's like that. I like it. Or I don't, and I'm going to stop listening to her and block her. That's fine. You go ahead and do that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, then they expect it and it's weird anymore. I think the hardest time is the first time. But it gets easier. You know, when I was thinking about geek culture, I was like talking to my husband about it because he has a very like textbook, right? Like read the comics from the time he was a kid, loved all the movies, did all the things, got me into comics. Um, I was telling him and it's changed. There are a lot more women in geek culture now, but it was not a welcoming space. It was not a feminist space. Um, and, and I love that these, there are so many women out there now making it a feminist space, decidedly making it a feminist space. Um, but you know, it kind it is sort of all related, which is why I talked about film school, because that was certainly the most immersed in a geek culture that I was in. Film school is a very geek you know, the movies you watch, the equipment, especially then, because it was actually film cameras. So you got to be in it, the tech, the knowledge, um, the critical theory, all of it. Um, and I felt such a deep need to be good at all of it, to be taken seriously at all. And I think that I even felt that way kind of as like a fan, or a geek. Like I need to know all, like, I can't just read one comic. I gotta like read all the comics. I, I can't just love, you know, Wonder Woman. Yeah. That's kind of lame. Like I'm a woman who loves Wonder Woman, you know, like you gotta like be more original than that. Come on. And so I think there was sort of this barrier to entry for me because I didn't feel welcome and I was intimidated. And I know, I still know people who feel this way by a comic book store. They feel intimidated by the people in there. They feel intimidated by all the choices. They have no idea where to start. It's like, there's a lot of books out there. Um, I, I am a little uncomfortable when I go into comic stores that are not my comic store um, still. And I mean, I'll joke about it with my husband. They will always talk to him. I'm just there. And so, you know, I mean, because most of the proprietors of comic stores are what? white dudes. So, you know, um, one of our local stores is a woman owns it. You know, it's a super like LGBTQ friendly space. I love it. Um, but that's Los Angeles. Yeah. That's an unusual space. Um, for me, it's like owning the parts that you want to own. You don't have to be a perfect geek. You don't have to be a textbook geek. You can just love the things you love, you know? And in the end, I was like, I, I'm a geek because I am fascinated with the world. I want to know how it works. I want to know the people who are in it and their experiences. I want to share my story and other people's stories. Those things like that deep caring about knowledge, that, that's what I have. And yes, sometimes it's film, sometimes it's theater, sometimes it's comics. Um, But like, I want to know how things work. I want to understand my place in the world. And when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with maps. And one of my kids is also obsessed with maps. And I always think it's like a great metaphor for, because I just wanted to understand where I belonged. And I think that is something that unites 
everyone. And I think we're also very quick to forget that. Once you find your place where you belong, it's very easy to just forget the journey that you took you to get there. Yes. And I think when you are lost in that place of not belonging, it is so easy to look outside yourself and be convinced that everyone else has a place. Hmm. And not to realize that just because someone looks like they have a place, they may not. I was that person. I think people always thought like, oh, she's got it together. She did I was just drifting around, lost, feeling very alone. And, you know, a lot of people feel that way. And just the simplest kindness, the simplest act of inclusion can go a very long way. So that, that sense that, you know, doing things to include people, to bring people in. What is it about geek culture, about being geek, all these sorts of things? What is it about that that you think can do that for people? Because people are still afraid to give it a go. Mm. Like, what is it, do you think, about geek culture that can help people find their place, even if it's not eventually in loving Batman? (laughs) Batman. Um, (laughs) um, It's funny you ask that because we just rewatched all the Harry Potter movies and we watched the Harry Potter special. I don't know if you have that in English, but it's like a 20 year reunion with all of them. And it's like super emotional. Yeah. (laughs) I cried for like so much of it. (laughs) Um, And that was like a note they hit really hard in that special. I don't know if you remember, but it was like how important it was to create this world and these kids who felt like misfits and that they had a place they belonged. Um, And that the book resonated with so many people because of that message, right? That there's, we're all misfits basically. And we're just trying to find a place. And that, I mean, these misfits save the world, of course, is very helpful. And we see a lot of that in a lot of geek culture, um, saving the world, but it is our own worlds, right? We're saving our world. I, I have saved my world. I was falling apart and reading books, and comics and movies, these things made me feel less alone because someone out there saw me. Even if the people in my life couldn't see me, these strangers could. And that helped me keep going. And it gave me a purpose. It made me want to tell my story because I think, what if I can, what if I can do that for someone? What if I can create something that makes somebody else want to keep going? Because that's really the big struggle, right? We just don't want to lose any more people. And I think there's so many just deeply sad, lonely people out there. And if you can create something or you can be a part of something that makes someone feel less alone, like that's a life well spent. You can find Alison on Twitter and Instagram at by Alison Shelton. That's B-Y-A-L-Y-S-O-N-S-H-E-L-T-O-N. Alison also has a personal website and blog, alisonshelton.com. And you can find more information about her amazing comic book, Reburn, at reburncomic.com, where you'll also be able to purchase all the available issues, as well as some pretty neat merchandise. As always, thank you for listening. You can contact the show at Era of Geek on social media, or head to superdummy.co.uk slash geek. 
If you like the show, please do leave a review and tell your friends. You can also leave a review on podchaser.com. Even though J.K. Rowling is deeply problematic, she did create something that has brought a lot of people a lot of joy, including myself. My youngest would have thought I was very remiss if I did not mention how problematic J.K. Rowling is. And it, I think you do read the books with a different eye. I mean, to a lot of the things you think, oh, wow, really, Cho Chang was the best name you could come up with. Like, it's super mm-hmm. racist, you know, but you kind of just float by it when you're younger. But then you revisit it and think, not a name that's a racial stereotype yeah um so yeah it's uh, it was interesting and that special too like how they just used old footage for her. <laughs> it's like here she is from 2018 because if we have her on this thing no one else will come <laughs> yeah. um and it's like i am i do think it's at I don't know if it's admirable, but it's definitely worth noting how many people have come out who are part of that world who have heartily disagreed with her mm. um, deeply transphobic statements. Um, and so that that is something. Um, and I think it's something we grapple with in general. I mean, a lot of the work by the most problematic people, I don't like it. So it doesn't really like I don't have to have that like. I don't have to like be like, do I think Woody Allen's a child molester? I absolutely do think Woody Allen's a child molester. And I don't miss not watching his movies. Mm. So that that one's not a hard one for me. But Harry Potter's more complicated for sure. And you definitely, I think for us, it was just talking about it with our kids and talking about um, what she now stands for. And what it seems mm. she's really committed uh, herself to being like this symbol of. Mm. Um, which is like just mind-boggling, but yeah. she obviously thinks that she's right, which is just the most like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs>